Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. History and politics, no matter how you look at it, are about either law or absence of law, justice or absence of justice. It's a glue that holds everything together in a lot of ways. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. In a break from our usual feature format, this week we're going to talk to one person whose life is immersed in the law. What does it take to become a judge? No one starts their legal career as a jurist. First they work as a lawyer, advocating for one side of a case over another. But transitioning from lawyer to judge means hearing both sides of a case objectively and then making decisions that carry the weight of the court. I recently sat down with a justice on the California Court of Appeal. I'm James R. Lambden. I'm uh, an Associate Justice in Division Two of the First District of Court of Appeal. Why law? For me? My uh, second oldest brother claims that I told him that I wanted to be a lawyer when I was 12, but I don't remember that. Um, I do remember pretty but then early second on. second oldest brothers, what do they know? He's not very reliable, actually, anyway. Well, I was very interested in it the more I studied history and politics because the law is integral to that. I mean, uh, history and politics, no matter how you look at it, are about either law or absence of law, justice or absence of justice. So uh, it's really kind of on top of the bubble in terms of society and the running of our civilization. It's a glue that holds everything together in a lot of ways. But even as a young man, you saw that? Mm -hmm. That was clear to me pretty early on. I was always interested in politics. I, I had a great-great-grandfather who was a judge as well. Oh, who where? Was in Texas. Uh, he was a justice of the peace in uh, West Texas. His name was General Dixon. Um, he was an unusual character uh, who appears to have been a little crazy. <laughs> Justice of the Peace at that time was a, both a, a sheriff and a judge, so essentially someone who could arrest you and put you in jail. He spread a rumor that a Lizzie Borden-type murderer, a woman who had killed her parents, had escaped from the asylum, which was located nearby in Texas, and then went around dressed in a bonnet and a dress, scaring his neighbors as a, as a prank. That story and the story of him killing a man in the front yard are all I ever heard from my grandmother. So when you first started law school, what was that like for you? I mean, I know your first year sounded a little difficult. <laughs> yeah, the first year was hard. It was very difficult, but that's true for everybody. Law school is an experience that's hard to describe. It's, it's like sailing. It's interspersed terror with boredom. Not a lot of boredom, but a lot of terror about your ability to, to do the work because it's an enormous amount of work. What is the work? Well, the way it's taught with the Socratic method, uh, you, you have to read all of the cases and discern from the cases the important precedential points. Um, 
none other than uh, Bernie Witkin, the most published legal author of all time, um, said that he thought that was BS, that that's a silly way to teach the law. And his system, of course, resulted in books that are essentially outlines. So for me, and I'm not saying any, anybody else, uh, the Socratic method was not very useful. Um, I don't learn that way. Um, so for me, learning the trick of actually how to learn the law was the most important lesson I learned in law school. So, you, so in law school, you learned how to digest mm -hmm. this massive amount of information and turn it into something that you could then apply to a specific case. Mm -hmm. So that's a ch that was a challenge, and mm -hmm. you learned how to do that. Then you went into private. Mm -hmm. um, but when you were selected by Governor Dick Majin to go to the uh, Superior Court, you had to change the way you approach law or maybe expand because now you're sitting on a bench. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you change from, or what is that morphosis like from being a lawyer to being a judge? The most notable thing about it is to change your role from being an advocate in an adversarial setting to being the one who makes the decision. An advocate in an adversarial setting who is being paid knows in advance the position that he's supposed to take because the client has hired him to take that position. That may not be the right answer, and that's the uncomfortable part of being a lawyer when you know that your client's case is really wrong. I mean, and that does occur. So that's uncomfortable over the years. Not, that's not terrible, but at the same time, you're free of that when you become a judge. Your job is to oversee the creation of justice at a trial and you just want to get the right answer. And that's a real pleasure uh, as opposed to having to find a way to make this the right answer uh, when you're a lawyer. Was it a tough decision whether to take the appointment? It had ramifications. It, it, uh, it was a tremendous pay cut for me, uh, which it is today for most people. Can you tell me what that differential I, is? I think I took about a 60% pay cut. Um, so which you had to discuss this with your family. Yeah, I did, which is, which is unusual, uh, which is not unusual even today. I mean, uh, to go from a successful civil practice today to the bench is a real hit uh, because of the pay differential, if nothing else. On the other hand, uh, at least in those days, the retirement was very good and the benefits were pretty good. And in the public service. In the public service job. But, he, but th it's always been a, a hard decision to make. You went to this judicial mm -hmm. college and you, you took a course in logic. Was that the only course you took? When no, there are several. Uh, that's another thing that the public is not really aware of, probably, is that um, California has the uh, judicial education and research. It was originally independent, but it became part of the uh, administrative office of the courts probably in the 90s. Um, and it is the premier judicial education organization in the world. Um, it is, uh, it produces videotapes and courses on all sorts of stuff, an amazing array of stuff. So when one is appointed judge, 
they have the uh, Judicial College every July. So every judge who has been appointed during the previous year goes to that. It's two weeks. It's got orientations on everything, ethics, uh, sentencing and criminal law. If you've never been a criminal law practitioner, it'll teach you substantive law, uh, how to deal with pro pers, uh, how to deal with bias issues. Uh, an extremely competent faculty teaches that stuff. Back when I started, it was pretty much on-the-job training, though, and I had been a civil lawyer for my entire career and went directly into a crowded felony department, which is the usual, that is the most common experience for people because that's where they need new judges. Um, and it's relatively easier to move from civil to criminal because criminals are a more compact set of information and civil is a much deeper, deeper pond. Uh, criminal is wide but shallow and civil is very deep. So it's a lot harder for the DAs to, to move into a civil assignment. Uh, but that, that's a real steep learning curve. And in the meantime, you have to rely on hotlines and the books that you've saved up and your colleagues to help you answer some of those thorny questions. Like what do you do when the juror doesn't show up? Uh, or when the, you know, those sort of things. Because being a, a trial judge, people forget, is a lot like running a, 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 I don't know, a grammar school picnic. Because you have to get everybody in the room every day, you gotta make sure everybody has a seat, people that have back problems have something behind their back, they all have something to drink, lunch has been arranged, you have time. to make sure that all happens as the judge. Well, the judge is in charge of... The courtroom. The courtroom. And believe me, there are an endless number of things that can go wrong. You know, everybody's in the room. I'm sitting on the bench. We've got 11 jurors. Where is he? I don't know. I remember early on in my career, I just got up and went out in the hall and started walking around in my robe, which people thought was crazy. And I found the guy. He was at the drinking fountain. And uh, brought what him back to What did you say to him? I just said, we're going to start. Come on in. And he was very chagrined. <laughs> Uh, yeah, managing trials, it's, that's the thing that you miss about trials when you come here, is just sort of the daily drama of people, you know, and all their problems and all the stuff that they say and do and all the good work they do and how hard they work. Juries, juries work very hard. Um, every judge I know admires the way juries work. They take it very seriously and that's very, it makes you optimistic about the system to see that citizens really care about doing a good job. But as the judge with the jury, you're just I mean, it's not your decision. No, that's the thing. People imagine that judges in a jury trial have a lot of power, but really we're just managing the information that comes and goes and, and answering objections and making sure everybody gets what they need, providing the instructions, but we're observers for the most part. The real decision is made by the jury. You were appointed by two Republican governors. To Correct. Yeah. So does that mean you're a Republican? Or? Well, I have been a Democrat and a Republican, and uh, I've been an, an mostly an independent early on and more recently an independent. This is a nonpartisan job, uh, and I take very seriously keeping my own views out of it. Um, so ultimately, I decided that decline to state was really the best way to go because um, I think it's unseemly for people to believe that we maintain our party affiliations. Other judges are free to do whatever they wish, but we give up some of our First Amendment rights taking this job. That was James Lambden. In July, Justice Lambden will step down as judge and associate justice 
on the California Court of Appeal. After 24 years on the bench, Lambden says he's excited to return to private practice as a neutral mediator and an attorney. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by me, Nancy Mullane, along with Shannon Heffernan, Julia Barton, Caitlin Prest, and Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Music by Kyle Kaplan, Todd McDonald, and Matthew Darr. Our web editor is Mary Atkins. Financial support comes from the Open Society Foundations, with special thanks to Thomas Hilbink. For more on this story and others on the law and the legal system, visit our website at lifeofthelaw.org. I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair. And we are the Mashup Americans. The Mashup Americans. <laughs> uh, think of us as your guide to the hyphen America world we live in. Are you first generation Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American, and making beige babies? Us too. Or do you speak three languages and eat Salvadoran pupusas at Shabbat? Is Spanglish your best language? That's me. <laughs> uh, Spanglish is definitely your best language. Yeah, it was kind of a problem in graduate school. <laughs> eh, don't worry about it. We're, we're done with that. So we've got a new show here on the awesome Infinite Guest Network. You can go search for Mashup Americans in your favorite podcast app and check it out. We've got a great story about the mashup life of Donald Trump. Oh, and I just went to Margaret Cho's house to Netflix and chill. Kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. Vamos, let's do this. As we like to say, get to know yourself, America.